0: I think all of us have probably spent some time fighting God on something, all right? Just, just saying, I want it, I want to have it my way. And in a sense, we swing and we punch and we thrash at God, and, and he could hit back and teach us a lesson, but he is patient, he is kind, he is merciful, and, um, and rather than, um, than put us in our place, which we deserve, his hands just keep holding us, and that's a that's a beautiful sign. Now, listen, I want to um, uh, just kind of get you prepared for this. Uh, Easter Sunday is coming up. That is a big celebration in the Christian faith, and and it gives us a reason to um, to celebrate big. I mean, Jesus Jesus not only went to the cross for our sins, but he conquers death and and completely validates. That, uh, that he is the son of God set to save. And that's why 2,000 years later, uh, even even people who are trying to disprove God, there's been many an atheist go out there and try to disprove God. They try to say, you know, if I could just prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the whole thing, the whole faith crumbles and over and over again. I got, I got five books written by a former atheist who tried to disprove Jesus and they come to faith and now they are believers. One of my favorites, a guy named Lee Strobel, he was an atheist, and now he's a pastor down in the Houston area, right? The, the evidence for the resurrection is just immense, and it, just, and it builds our faith. So we celebrate that. We celebrate it big. Now, one of the things I learned years ago is that more people go to church on Easter Sunday than any other Sunday of the year. Fewer people make a decision or respond to God on Easter Sunday than any other Sunday. Like, what gives? More people, fewer decisions. Why? Why is it? Well, I think the reason is, is people come into church, and they don't seek God. You know, Jesus says, seek and ye shall find. Well, they, they're not seeking. They're they like, listen, I know I'm going to hear about the cross. I know I'm going to hear about the resurrection, but we got a ham in the oven, and we got eggs to go hide, and the pictures to take, and they don't really tune in. And so that, for me, as a pastor, says, you know what, let's see if we can't... Um, Let's see if we can't do something, stir things up. And if you were here last, last Easter, um, we do stir things up. And we're going to do it again this year. And it's going to be a great time. And our subject is the gospel, the, the best news ever. <clears throat> Years ago, I was um, meeting with a, uh, a retired missionary. And he was telling me about, you know, trying to share the gospel with people in another country. He says, listen, we in America, we think that telling people the gospel is telling them how to be saved. People have to be prepared to hear the gospel. Uh, if you think about it, Adam and Eve sin in the garden. Why didn't God just have the cross happen right then and there? Why, why, why take the 4,000 years? You know what God did over those 4,000 years? He prepared us as, as, a, as mankind to hear the gospel. We weren't ready to hear it. We needed to understand. We needed to learn. There is a God, and this God has standards. And this, and we have violated the standards. But this God is merciful. This God is, is patient. Um, this God keeps his promises. And all these things are preparing us to hear the gospel. And so at the right time, you know, after centuries of God proving his love, proving his patience, proving that he is serious about sin, he sends Jesus Christ. And when you look at the, um, uh, in the book of Acts, when Peter first preaches at the day of Pentecost, go look at his sermon he starts telling them about creation. He starts telling them about the prophets. He starts tell, going through biblical history. And what happens is the people then respond saying, what must we do to be saved? See, we take the gospel and we say, here's what you got to do to be saved. A lot of times people have to be prepared to hear the gospel. I think in America, we used to prepare people to hear the gospel. You would go into a classroom and there'd be the Ten Commandments on the board. They would open the day with prayer. It just kind of prepares you. So you know what, there is a God... He's got standards. Then you come to church, you're like, you know what, I lied this week. You know what, I stole a pencil I shouldn't have. You know what, I, I, I didn't honor my mother and father. And then you, 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 you recognize your need. People hear the gospel and they respond. We live in a day and age where people aren't prepared to hear the gospel. So on Easter Sunday, I want to tell you, this is a great day for you to bring somebody to church so they can hear the gospel because we're going to spend time talking about why there is a God, who, what he's like, what his character, and then we're going to get to what happens on the cross. And Lord willing, I've seen it happen before. It happened last year. People met Jesus. People got saved, all right? So as we, we take those cards out and we pray over them, uh, this, this isn't just like, let's go through the motions. This is something for us to do during an hour. Uh, this is a, a real significant moment, and I, and I hope you'll really start to pray about who you can invite Um, And really, those that you might think are the most lost, this might be one of the best days to bring them um, to church. And uh, and it'll be a big celebration. Then afterwards, we will have fun with the kids. They don't have to worry about who's going to hide the eggs. We're going to do that for them, all right? If y'all will bring us eggs, we'll hide them, okay? All right, so I want you to know that. Um, Let's continue in our study on um, the Sermon on the Mount. We now come to the seventh chapter in the book of Matthew, in this study of Jesus' sermon on the mount. Uh, Now, Jesus preached a lot of sermons, but few of them were recorded because what impacted people the most was how Jesus lived, how he responded to circumstances, how he reacted, what he did, uh, what he did when life came at him. And what they wrote about Jesus, it gives us a great lesson for us today that, that who you are and what you do is far more important than what you say. And in the end, people will remember you for who you are far more than anything you'll ever say. I know this as a preacher because it's like, I mean, I spent all those years in youth ministry. Kids, kids never come back to me as adults say, oh, I remember this lesson you taught Bob. They always remember just who I am, what I am. All right? Same is true for you. Your legacy is going to be based on who you are way more than what you say. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, if I speak... In the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. So You can know all the right answers and say all the right things, but if you're not characterized by love, then, then all that you know and say, it amounts to nothing. And you're, not, you're just a clanging cymbal and a bunch of noise. See, what impacted, what impacted people most about Jesus was, was, was who he was. That when he walked on earth, it was how he lived. And, and consequently, his preaching was not nullified by how he lived. It was empowered because he lived what he preached. Um, and, and it was empowered enough that the gospel writers there said, you know what, we need to write some of this down. This, this stuff is powerful, and they wrote down this sermon of his, as recorded in the book of Matthew, this Sermon on the Mount. Now, one of the things that I've enjoyed the most in our study of this great sermon is just how intentional Jesus was with what he spoke. You know, our English translations in the Bible, they, they segment out the teachings for us to kind of make it easier for us to reference. Um, but Jesus taught it all together. So what happens to us when we read something like the Sermon on the Mount is we just our, our eyes fixate on those segments and we kind of read them in isolation and we miss the deeper connections. When you read the Sermon on the Mount you probably read it as as kind of it's kind of random. Jesus is here and there, but 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 it's not. Jesus was very intentional in what he taught. The order that he teaches it in and 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 he's very intentional on in where he's trying to move us to. So as we begin chapter 7, Jesus focuses his uh, he shifts the focus of his application from how do we have a powerful relationship with God to how we are supposed to relate to people. And and this shift it lines up with, with the shift that we see in the Beatitudes. I'll remind you that that, that Jesus' sermon here it follows a typical Hebrew pattern of teaching where you give the entire teaching up front and then you come up behind it and you break it down into greater detail. Jesus was a Jewish carpenter. He was speaking to a Jewish audience. It's only fitting that he teaches in a classic Hebrew pattern of teaching. So look back with me to Matthew chapter five at the Beatitudes. I, just, I want you to see um, how this, uh, this breaks down and how Jesus continues with this um, in chapter six and seven. Jesus teaches, uh, the, the opening which is called the Beatitudes. He teaches, blessed are the, uh, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All those blessed, they deal with your relationship with God. You see, in order to have a healthy relationship with God, you've got to come to God poor. You have to recognize that you are in need. That in order for you to have a relationship with a perfect and holy God, that, that, that what is required for you to have that kind of relationship with a perfect and holy God is something that you don't have. Something you can't buy. Something you can't invent. Something you can't create. Something you can't borrow. That, that you come to God impoverished. You're like, God, I don't have what it takes. I'm spiritually poor. Once you recognize that you're spiritually poor then it's going to make you open to what God has and what God has to say to you. See, when you think of yourself as spiritually rich, you're not open to what God has to say. You don't don't think you need the Bible. You don't need prayer. I mean, why would you? You think yourself to be rich. In the book of Revelation, uh, the last book of the Bible, Jesus speaks um, to the condition of seven churches in the ancient world. And to the church in Laodicea, he says this, Revelation three seventeen. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, the people of this church, they stop being poor in spirit. The reason most people miss out on a healthy relationship with God is they think that they don't have a need. They think they've got it all together. When in reality, they don't realize that they are spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But if you could be poor in spirit, then you'll be open to what God has for you. You'll be open to what God has to say. And God will speak to you, and he'll speak to you about deeper issues. He'll speak to you about core issues. And when God speaks to you about core issues, and you recognize your wretched condition, it will be a cause for you to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And, as, and now, God is, is working in you. He's now changing you from your core, from the inside. Not changing surface problems, not dealing with surface issues, but, but dealing with the things that are down deep at the root. And that will lead you to becoming meek. Blessed are the meek. Meek is actually a word for strength. It's a, it's a strength that comes from submission. And most people never get there in life. When you're meek, you become in tune with the heart and the mind of God, and now God begins to use you in significant ways. And when that happens, it makes you hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, the first four beatitudes they deal with uh, with developing and deepening your relationship with God. The next five beatitudes they deal with with your relationship with people and, and becoming a leader. That's why the very next beatitude says, blessed are the merciful. A deepening relationship with God should make you hunger and thirst for the things of God. But as you continue to live among people who hunger and thirst for things that have nothing to do with God, you have to intentionally choose to be merciful. If you don't, you'll become angry and bitter, and you'll become pharisaical and legalistic. The heart of God is a heart of redemption, all right? God, God could give you judgment, but because he has a heart of redemption, God instead gives you mercy. And we should do likewise. And if you'll take that first step of mercy, then you are on your way to becoming a leader that God can use for the purpose of redemption. And the rest of the Beatitudes, they just move in that direction. And it and it culminates in Matthew's uh, chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is found here in verse 16 of chapter 5. The point of the sermon is, is, is what it looks like to have a healthy and growing relationship with God and becoming a leader that God uses for his purposes. Now, the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, Jesus teaches, he just he, he teaches that very first point how to have that deep and powerful relationship with God, what that looks like. Then in chapter 7, he begins to teach on what it looks like to be an effective leader serving God. So turn with me to chapter 7 and read with me. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus says that judgmentalism is not how you are to be salt and light in this world. It's not how you make a difference It's not an effective way to lead. You're not going to make a positive difference in this world by setting yourself apart as better than or as more spiritual or higher than others. That's not good leadership. You don't lead by being judgmental. Again, look at this. Verse 1 and 2. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. See Jesus teaches that if you set yourself apart as better and higher than others that in that in regards to being an effective leader you're making a big mistake. You see leadership it's it's organic. It's down up. It's it's in out. Leadership happens because people recognize who you are. It's not it's not top down and out in it's It's organic. It doesn't happen because you tell them that you are better than them. It doesn't doesn't happen because you you tell people that you are better than themselves. And if you have to tell them, you've already lost the clubhouse. One of the great lessons taught to me back in my college years is from a great Baptist preacher um, named Richard Jackson. And he taught us, he said, Just because you've been hired to a position, that doesn't mean people will follow you. I mean, you might be hired to be the leader. You might be hired to be the pastor. But if people don't follow you, you're not actually leading. You've got a title, but it's completely meaningless. And he taught us. He says, listen, you go in there, you get yourself a hired, you get a new position. You go in there and you earn the right to lead. You build trust. Because leadership is really organic. It's, it's, it's down up not top-down. If you utilize judgment as a way of leading, you end up pushing the self-destruct button on your leadership. Because judgment does three things. Number one, it demeans the person that you're trying to lead. See, you're not going to raise anyone up if you've demeaned them. Judge not that you not be judged. And, And you need to recognize that, that other people are going to judge you by the same values and principles that you've imposed on them. Judgment never works. Uh, number two, judgment, it, it discourages. See, leadership is designed to, um, to, to lift people up, to call them up to a higher place than they are at, to, to get them to a higher level and, and to encourage them to believe that they can actually do it. But if you judge, you discourage them. And rather than moving them to a higher place, they're discouraged and demeaned, and they don't move. Judgment is bad leadership. Third reason is judgment, it deflates people that you're trying to lead. It causes people to lose heart, and they will stop following. You know, when we lived in the little town of Albany, there was always a shortage of men to coach kids sports. And so I got to coach a lot of children's sports, even sports that I really didn't have a whole lot of experience in. But even though I didn't understand the sport, God gave me five kids. I had a decent understanding of kids, all right? Back there in that little town, the sport that meant the most to people was football. That's the one. And it was highly competitive. I mean, ridiculously, annoyingly, competitive these people there they would hold a draft for kindergartners first and second graders and grown men would scout out little people looking for star athletes to put on their team oh yeah it was ridiculous i get called to be on there and i'm sitting there and i'm like we're drafting kids this is ridiculous i went into the draft like this i said i don't need the athletes if the kid goes to my church, I want him on my, on my team. I'm their pastor, I'm going to be their coach. And I just, regardless of their athletic ability, all right? You remember little uh, uh, Logan Ballou? All right, so that's shaking his head. <laughs> kid had no athletic ability. It was really almost uncoachable because he, he just wanted to goof around, you know. He didn't care about catching the ball. He just, you know, wanted to pinch somebody. That's what he was like, you know. I would, I would coach, I would draft the kids who went to my church, and then I would pick up whoever nobody else wanted. Which meant that for football, I would get the rare girl who was willing to sign up for football. And those are the teams that I coach. These coaches, they were so competitive. They would yell at the kids. They would blister those kids with those words. They put a lot of pressure on those kids. And what ended up happening over the season is they would just start giving the ball to just two kids. They're two. Most star athletes, they're the ones that would get the ball. That's what they do. Well, at the end of the season, they, you know, in this competitive little football town, they had to have a Super Bowl. There was a playoff for kindergartners, first and second grade, little flag football. And uh, um, me, I took a different approach to coaching those kids. I was like, I want all the kids to get the ball. I want every kid to run a touchdown. And by the time the season wound down, the other kids had so discouraged, so demeaned, so deflated that the other kids, they had two kids who were ready to play, eight kids who were like, what's the point? I'm not going to get the ball. On my team, I had 10 kids. All of them were like, I'm going to get the ball. I get the ball. And, and they all believed they could run a touchdown. And you know what happens in those championships games? They did. Two years in a row, the most uncompetitive coach won the Little Albany Championship. And you know what was greater than the trophy that we got for it? I'll tell you what was better. It was seeing all those competitive dads who were trying to live vicariously through their kids frustrated because the guy who didn't take it so seriously won the championship. Again, that was, that was my reward. That was my reward. Listen, whether it's kids or adults, if you demean, discourage, or deflate, you are a bad leader. And judgment does all those things. Judgment doesn't work. It doesn't work in your marriage. It doesn't work with your kids. It doesn't work with your employees. And it does not work in spiritual development. Judgment is not a good leadership style. So then you see Jesus, he teaches us that a judgmental spirit, it generally reveals a person who's got trouble looking at themselves in a mirror. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice that the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You see, when a person is judgmental, it's usually an indication that a person, they, they are unable to look at themselves honestly. So they use judgment of others in an attempt to distract people away from their own shortcomings and character flaws. And in many cases, What the person is most judgmental about, it's the very thing that they themselves are trying to hide. When you're highly judgmental about something, it reveals that you've got a serious problem looking at yourself in the mirror. And you cannot grow, you cannot deepen, and you can't be a leader until you reach a place that you can look at the mirror and look at yourself and be honest with God about what you see. Because when you can be honest with God about who you really are and you can accept the truths about yourselves, the ones that you don't like, then what can now happen is that truth can now set you free. The Problem is, most people don't want to know the truth because truth can be harsh. Truth, truth can be, sometimes be ugly. It's abrasive. And it always calls for personal change. And none of us want any of those things. So it's much easier for us to make a big deal about the speck in someone else's eye. While we're being oblivious to the log that's in our own. Now let me tell you what judgment is not. You see we live in a day and age. When this passage may be the most misused passage in all scripture. I think every drug user, alcoholic, and cheater in the world, they might not read the Bible, but they know this passage. You you tell someone they ought not be doing something, that it's bad for them, and all of a sudden you hear the words, you're not supposed to judge. Thou shalt not judge. You can't tell me I'm doing wrong because you're doing wrong by judging me. And the way that they understand this teaching is that not judging is This teaching on not judging is that as a Christian, you are not allowed to think intelligently and negatively about anything. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. See, Jesus is teaching. He's not teaching that to be non-judgmental means that you are to be a happy and brain dead and blind. But if you can look at yourself honestly in the mirror, you can be an effective leader. You can deal with the log in your eye. If you can't look at yourself honestly in the, in the mirror, you'll never be an effective leader. You'll never be able to help somebody with the speck in their eye. I mean, look, uh, uh, 10 verses later, Jesus is teaching on making the, a distinction between um, a false prophet and a real prophet. Uh, Matthew 7 starting in verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles so every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. See, Jesus is teaching. He says, "Listen, like being—he's not. You've got to make a judgment here. Is this a healthy tree or is this a disease tree? You're going to know them by their fruits. You've got to make an intellectual distinction about good and bad here. That's a judgment. Jesus isn't teaching that you have to just turn off your brain in order to be non-judgmental. What he's really teaching is, is that you've got to be a person who can look in the mirror first and be honest about who you are with God." then, then, you'll be equipped to help other people. You'll be equipped to be an effective leader at that point. Look, it's impossible to go through life without making judgment on things. It's okay to call things as they are. Sin is sin. Wrong is wrong. Bad is bad. If you're going to be an effective leader, if you're going to be salt and light in this world, then you need to be a person who's able to look in the mirror and be honest with God about what you see. And when you do that, if you can be honest about your mistakes, about your shortcomings, then you're more likely to be the kind of person who gives people grace and gives them a chance, a second chance, and a third chance. Because you recognize that you yourself have needed those second and third chances. If you can be that kind of person then you'll be someone who can actually help others in a non-judgmental way. So Jesus shows us what bad leadership looks like. Now he gives us a teaching on what good leadership looks like. And he's not teaching basic leadership here. He's teaching the kind of leadership that is meant to change the world. Because you've probably experienced this. You've probably experienced a leader who, who has had a degree of success in getting what he or she wants by being judgmental. The problem is that style of leadership doesn't go very far. And those type of leaders, they're always having a constant rotation, a constant turnover of people beneath them. See, Being judgmental doesn't work. Jesus taught his disciples good leadership, and, and he did it such a good job. We still name our sons after those men 2,000 years later. So here's good leadership. Jesus teaches in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus says if you are going to practice good leadership, if you're going to make a significant positive difference in this world, then you're going to have to refrain from investing in two groups, dogs and pigs. If you're going to be serious about being salt and light in this world, then you have to understand That you've got limited energy. You've got limited time. And you're not going to be able to help everybody. You just can't invest in everybody. It's not realistic. And as you set out to minister and lead to others, you need to be careful about ministering to, about investing to, the dogs and the pigs. Now, who are the dogs? They are people who are controlled by the herd and by the group. And they live without self-control. Who are the pigs? They are the people who, who are insatiably selfish. If you're going to lead, you need to know that there are some people that you just can't lead. They are unleadable. The person who finds their identity in the group and in the crowd, the person who's always trying to be in the trendy, you love that person, you care about that person, but you don't waste a whole lot of investment in them. There's a lot of people that I love but they're not interesting in changing and growing right now. So I check on them. See how they're doing. I love them. But I don't waste a lot of time there. I wait and pray that someday they're going to come a point where they want to go deeper. And that's when you take them deeper. But right now, they're not interested in deeper. They're not interested in growing. They're busy chasing the trendy. Trying to fit in. Jesus says, don't give the dogs what's holy. Find the people that are serious about growing and invest your time there. He says, don't cast your pearls before the pigs. Pigs are insatiably selfish. There are some people that that are so selfish that no matter how much you give them, it's never going to be enough. No matter how much you do, it's never enough. You love that person, you care about them, but you don't waste a whole lot of energy in them. Now this is a tough teaching because we live in a world that teaches that everybody should get the same. And because of that, as a society, we meet at the lowest common denominator. That's not what Jesus taught, and that's not how Jesus led. Jesus taught that God loves everybody. And depending upon your response to his love will determine how high you're going to go in your own life in spiritual development. Jesus gave the masses food. One day, 5,000 people show up, and he feeds them with five loaves and two fish. But then the next day, they came back for more, and they tried to make him king as a part of the bargain. Jesus didn't give them that. He fed them, he loved them, but he didn't take them in the boat with him, did he? They didn't get to see him walk on the water. Within that 5,000, there was a group of about 120 that got the power on the day of Pentecost. He didn't give that to everybody. Within that 120, there were 72 that he sent out two by two, and he gave them the power to cast out demons and heal people. He didn't give that to everybody. Within those 72, there were 12. They got to go places. They got to see things. They got to hear things. They got to be up close and personal with the miracles. Jesus didn't give that to everybody. And within the 12, there were three. Peter, James, and John. They got to go places and see things that others didn't get to see and do. There wasn't enough room in uh, Jairus' little mud hut for 12 people to get in there and see that little girl raised from the dead. Who got to see that? Peter, James, and John. On the mount where Jesus was transfigured, only three got to see that. And they got, only three got to hear the voice of God say, this is my son, Peter, James, and John. In the Garden of Gethsemane, not enough room for 12 men to get in that little space. Who got to get in there close enough to see Jesus' sweat drops of blood? Peter, James, and John. You know, those disciples, as you read the Gospels, they, they were constantly having an argument over who was the greatest among them. I would not be surprised if there was some jealousy among the bunch, if there was some frustration. Gosh, why didn't Jesus taken us? Why is he always taking them? I would not be surprised about that. Find me one place in Scripture where Jesus ever apologizes. Jesus had no problem giving more to those who hungered and thirst for righteousness. And others? He just knew. You can't lead people where they're not going to go. So he teaches us. Do not cast. Do not give what's holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before the pigs. Look, if you you want to be an effective leader, you won't be if you're judgmental. And you need to understand you can't help everyone. And God does not expect you to lead people places that they're not willing to go. You love them. You care for them. You pray for them. But be wise with where you invest your time and energy. Now, I'll close with this too, because there's another mistake that people make with this passage. I had a young, young man who was having conflict with his boss. And both he and his boss went to my church. And they needed to work things out. They needed to apologize. They needed to forgive and he comes to me he says well jesus says don't don't give dogs what's holy don't 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 cast your pearls before the pigs his his what was his pearl was his apology he's like well, i'm not going to give that man an apology he's a dog and a pig i'm not going to do that i said son that's not what that scripture means that's that's not what that means at all you you're supposed to respect those in authority. You're supposed to honor those. You're supposed to give them the respect that's due. That's Scripture there. You, you, and you don't get to determine what your pearl is here. Alright? You, you've got this all wrong. You know, a lot of times we take this Scripture and we try to, we try to cast it on people. Don't quote this to somebody. You know, call, huh, you're, I, I would spend time with you, but you're a dog. They're not going to hear that well. Alright? Listen. Don't hear dog and pig as a complete negative either, though. We got a, a little G- Boston Terrier for Christmas. Black and white, cute as can be. She's smart. She's a dog. She does dog things. We love her. We, we you know, she's, she brings a lot of energy into the house. But She's a dog. Things she puts in her mouth are horrible. She loves the space heater. She licks it. Burns her little tongue. Licks it again. What's wrong with you little animal? And she's a smart one. But that doesn't make her bad. There may be people in your life that would fall in that category. They're not bad. All right? No. there's may be some bad preaching there. All right? But that, that, listen, I, what I'm trying to get you to do as I misspeak is, is to not lose sight of people's value and worth, all right? Don't categorize them in a judgmental way, but be wise with your time and, and where you invest it, all right? And when they're ready to go deeper, they'll go deeper. And someday I'm going to teach you um, on how to recognize um, those kind of folks, all right? We've got a great acronym. You look for people who are spiritually fat, right? Faithful, available, teachable. You can't take somebody deeper if they're not faithful. You can't take somebody deeper if they're not available. And you certainly can't take them deeper if they're not teachable. If you find people who are spiritually fat, you can take them deeper. And we'll get into this because Jesus next teaches on um, how to ask, seek, and knock. You depend on God to show you the places and the people that you are to invest your time in, all right? And we'll get there next week. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Jesus has a purpose and a plan for each of us and that he gives us teaching on how we're to get there. God, I pray that... um, That we all could be people who can look in the mirror and recognize our own faults and failings. And that we can deal honestly with who we are with you. That we don't be an actor with you. And that would trickle down and we wouldn't be an actor with others. God today... Help us to discover the logs that are in our eyes. Help us become aware of the things in our own lives that are blinding us and keeping us from growing and deepening in our relationship with you and are hamstringing our ability to make a difference in this world. God, grant us wisdom. And teach us how to daily to seek you for guidance. For you know all things. You've got good works marked out for each of us that you prepared in advance for us. We don't know them, but that is not a mystery to you. Help us to learn to seek you first in all things. And Father God, if there be any here today who have not yet given their life over to your son Jesus, I just ask that you would speak to their hearts. That they, could, that they could sense a drawing and a calling from you. And God, that, that it would awaken in them their need for you. May none of us think of ourselves as spiritually rich. May we come to you poor and needy knowing that you have what we need. So speak to us and guide us. We pray these things in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.